You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. We are here for the Entheogenesis Australis Garden States event. Uh, EGA uh, runs psychedelic symposiums, big outdoor events uh, every few years. The last one was in 2017, uh, and also city events, of which this is one of them. Uh, so thank you for coming along. Uh, as I said, this is broadcasting live on 3CR, and thank you to Freedom of Species, the uh, show on from 1pm. Uh, you can find out more at the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. I'd like to acknowledge also the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We are on the traditional lands of the Bunwurrung uh, today and I'd like to pay, our, uh, pay my respects uh, to uh, any elders past, present and emerging. My name is Nick Wallace, this is in Psychedelia. Uh, four years we've been running now on 3CR on Sunday afternoons uh, covering uh, drug issues from the medically supervised injecting room to the debacle that is medical cannabis, uh, to pill testing, uh, to uh, talking about the, the psychedelic research that's going on, the psychedelic renaissance that's been going on uh, around the world. But, um, but today we are going to be looking at, uh, at the thin green line, uh, a line that's grown between plants um, and your ability to put a seed in the ground and grow that plant, and that's fine because that's just what happens, and you put a seed in the ground and you could be arrested for that plant growing. Uh, and that line has grown over the past um, 100 years or so, uh, and we'll be, we'll be starting with the, the origins of that uh, shortly. Uh, also, I just want to acknowledge here that we're not going to be uh, touching on uh, the native plants and Aboriginal knowledge of these plants. Um, we recognise that prohibition exists today as, as an extension of sorts of, of the colonialist, colonialist mindset uh, brought from European cultures and certainly spread over the 20th century by the United States. Uh, that's, a, that's a big story, but we're not going to get... Uh, tucked into that today. It's a, it's, a, it's a wider story. So I would like to first introduce Ash Blackwell. Ash is my regular co-host on Encyclopedia. Ash, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks, Nick. Uh, and also our panellists here today uh, on, uh, my, on the left here is Torsten, who is the owner of Shaman Australis Botanicals. Uh, you may have been to the websites or forums before. Uh, Shaman Australis Botanicals specialises in the supply of shamanic and other ethnobotanical plants, and uh, Torsten encourages individuals to learn about the plants that provide us with food and medicine so that the knowledge about them is kept alive and utilised. Uh, Torsten brings a scientific approach to herbs and plants that highlights their biology, chemistry and pharmacology, uh, but in a way that's applicable to anyone and in everyday situations. Please give a warm welcome to Torsten. And sitting next to Torsten is Dr James Rowe. Uh, he is uh, an RMIT Professor or doctor? Doctor. Doctor. Professor is the next one up. Like doctor. <laughs> uh, with a background in, in policy, and you've done um, all, all sorts of work in, in sort of um, different areas, public health policy, especially around drugs. Uh, and you also have lived experience with um, with opiates, which informs your um, uh, your research and perspective. Yeah, both sides. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, warm welcome to Dr. James Rowe. 
And uh, finally, uh, uh, Snoo, who is a research, uh, who researches and writes about psychoactive agents from the natural world, with one foot in science and the other in mystico spirituality. Uh, Snoo is best known as the author of Garden of Eden, published in 2009, and also available online. I think the whole is the whole text available online, Snoo. Um, uh, uh, which is a review and examination of current knowledge in the field. Please welcome Snoo. We were going to have a final guest, which was uh, Fiona Patton, leader of the Reason Party in Victoria, uh, and also a member of the Legislative Council for the Northern Metropolitan Region. But Fiona uh, was unable to uh, make it today and sends her apologies and wishes she was here uh, with everyone. Uh, Fiona is uh, very busily preparing for, apparently, we have an election next week on Saturday, if you haven't forgotten. So she's uh, <laughs> busily preparing uh, for that. Um, so we'll start first with the origins of prohibition in this country, which of course comes with the origins of, well, it comes with colonialism, uh, and it comes with the arrival of Europeans in this country, but it was the late 19th century uh, that really saw restrictions on uh, a select few plants. Uh, and I'd like to ask James to speak a little bit about the origins of prohibition in, in Australia and in Victoria in particular, sure. although there wasn't in Australia, uh, Victoria before. Like, yeah, Australia-wide. I mean, Australia's always had a, a higher use of psychoactive, a higher rate of psychoactive drug use than anywhere else in the world, and people have often wondered why, because pasty Europeans are in harsh and, and oh, harsh climes and, and, and whatnot. Um, but it was sort of, drugs were consumed as, as medicinal products, patent medicines, elixirs, nostrums. Um, containing the, the psychoactive products of the day, so uh, initially opium, later cocaine, tincture of cannabis, laudanum, all of these prescribed adults, children. Um, the start of the, the, 20, the 20th century, we have about 600 medicinal products being sort of foisted on the public through very lucrative advertising campaigns um, and promoted as a cure for every ailment. And as you can imagine, a, a nostrum loaded with morphine is going to cure you for whatever ails you for, for a short period of time. And then you're going to take a bit more and you're going to be feeling fucking good. Um, it will cure you. But, but the first laws that were sort of introduced around drugs were really about who was using those drugs. And it, and it, was, it was typically um, stories around community centres inferior, so the Chinese community in particular in Australia, um, the, the, the practice of smoking opium was a recreational pursuit, I guess, pretty much solely um, indulged in by, by Chinese immigrants, brought to Australia by gold rushes. Uh, it was, they were seen as at a time in which a racial hierarchy was very much uh, held to by, by white Europeans, the Chinese were located rather lowly on that hierarchy. Um, and their practices were seen as deviant due to that association. So Europeans could consume vast quantities of opiates for medicinal reasons, but because the Chinese were smoking opium, uh, this was seen as, as somehow deviant. And it was made even more concerning given, the, uh, in a real blow to the white male ego, the presence of, of, of European women amongst predominantly male Chinese immigrant communities. Um, I mean, obviously, we're talking in talking of times for poor refuges, um, and we're talking of times in which oh, women were abused and women were, were treated as uh, slaves of males, and they were treated, um, in a generalised sense, much more fairly in these male-only or well, predominantly male Chinese communities. Uh, but for a white European male 
with the racial beliefs of the day, a, a woman lowering herself to live voluntarily amongst deviant, disgusting, in quotation marks, Chinese, was um, unthinkable, so they were being uh, doped into sexual slavery, or so the belief was. Um, no colony pre-Federation is willing to, to prohibit op opium produced for smoking because of the, the revenue. In 1870, Victoria has, I think it's 28,000 kilograms brought in, and that brings in something like, oh shit, 76,000 pounds in taxation revenue. So if Victoria criminalises opium prepared for smoking, the New South Wales colony makes a profit and smugglers just bring it over the border. Um, so Federation was seen as a real, the bulletin under its you know, proud masthead, Australia for the white man, saw Federation as a, a means of pushing Chinese practices, including gambling, fan tan, smallpox, the people might have seen the, the, the octopus with the many immoral practices the Chinese brought to Australia, out of Australia. Federation allowed for a central government, customs laws. For the first time, there was no fear of one colony having a monopoly. Um, customs laws were, I guess the 1905 Opium Proclamation becomes the first criminal law to prohibit a psychoactive drug in Australia. And the results are immediate. You know, you have a tin of opium pre-prohibition selling for 30 shillings, post-prohibition selling for five pounds, pre-prohibition 100% pure, post-prohibition 50% opium, 50% molasses, treacle, <laughs> um, the, 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 the profits. Um, that can be uh, generated by selling is adulterated product is sufficient to corrupt customs officers and police. You know, the, the Argus of the day, the, the newspapers of the day are rife with these stories of corruption. Um, smuggling is a, a very lucrative uh, pa pastime activity. The, the, the lessons of prohibition are learnt in the first year of fucking opium, <laughs> excuse me, of, of opium prohibition, but we, you know, obviously we've gone through the same thing. The medicinal the medicinal use of drugs by white Europeans resists any sort of regulation for a long time, for a long time. And that, that resistance goes past the, um, you know, the discovery of the invention of the hypodermic in 1837, and then you know, the biopharmaceutical company launching heroin on the world, um, you know, ordering mail order catalogue syringe hypodermic kits with your soluble tablets of cocaine or morphine or heroin. It's, it, it takes a long time for European drug use to be criminalised. And it remains popular in Australia while other countries are, are criminalising and demonising certain substances. So there's a, there's a couple of quotes here that I um, put into the Students for Sensible Drug Policy submission to the last Parliament's Drug Law Reform Inquiry that kind of highlights some of this. So in 1905, in the Victorian parliamentary debate, Mr Gaunson expresses his opposition to the bill by pointing out that the Labor Party, uh, what a terrible injustice they are doing to themselves by trying to prolong the existence of the Chinese. It would be considered a devilish good job to let them all smoke opium until they were wiped out of existence. So that's the I reckon explicit it might have been, racism. Might have I might have pulled James's. that from one of yours. It could have been. Yeah. And the other, one, the other one that highlights the point that was made about how quickly the failure of prohibition was learnt was HNP Wollaston in 1908, the uh, Commonwealth Comptroller General of Customs, stated that owing to a total prohibition, the price of opium has risen enormously. The Commonwealth gladly gave up about 60,000 pounds in revenue with a view to suppression of the evil, but the result has not been what has hoped for. What now appears to be the effect of total prohibition is that while we have lost the duty, the opium is still imported freely. 
So it's 1908. That's mm. how long we've known prohibition doesn't work. I mean, one, one other quote from those parliamentary debates that really reinforces the fragilities of the time. One of the parliamentarians talked about how he, he, he wouldn't mind if the, the Chinese suffered the fate that fell on the firstborn of Egypt, but he was more, more concerned about the white women, quote, systematically decoyed into dens by the filthy Chinese using opium. Yeah, and, and on the point of uh, access for other people that weren't Chinese and had a different way of mm. consuming it, yeah. Australia resisted the prohibition of heroin uh, while the rest of the world moved forward until 1953. And um, it was around that period where you saw a change in the rhetoric as well. All of a sudden, people that used heroin weren't uh, people using it for a medicinal thing. They were, they were God forbid, homosexuals That's and right. deviants mm. and vagrants. And so you saw the rhetoric shift in line with the changing attitude towards prohibition. Um, and it's not necessarily that those things were true in any way, it's just that it's always been a useful way to use subgroups of society, people that uh, might have an existing prejudice against them to push through these prohibition uh, the, laws. The geographical politics of the time has to come into it too. I mean, post-World War II, the, the reliance on Britain for, for international security is gone. You know, the fleeing of Singapore, the reliance on the US, um, is pronounced, but between the wars, Australia's heroin use is, is three times per capita that of the English, 50 times per capita that of the US. Um, and this is a country that is making pointed inquiries as to when are you going to stop using this drug that we are seeing as a product that is destroying or potentially causing great moral rot in our society and you're using it freely. Um, but Australia keeps using it widely. There is nothing but political pressure. There's no overdoses in the 10 years prior due to heroin alone. There's no rehab facilities. There's no heroin-related crime. There is no reason for prohibition other than political pressure and international embarrassments. So we might refer to that as like phase one of prohibition, this mm. period from the end of the 19th century up until uh, 1950s, 1960s in particular, when we started to see a change. Uh, so during that, that sort of phase one period, we had the League of Nations, uh, we had a Hague Convention to control uh, the, uh, the trade of opium around, around the world before World War I. We had World War I and World War II, which created uh, global trauma and a lot of people who were trying to heal that trauma using various substances avail available to, to them at the time. As James has touched on, Australia uh, was uh, or appeared to be, by the data that we had in the time, one of the biggest uh, drug users uh, in the world, um, which I think is still pretty, uh, I think it's still it pretty up there, especially from, for heroin. Yeah. Yep. Only Norway used more. I don't know what the Norwegians were up to, but we so, were second. So in, uh, in 1961, um, the United Nations uh, introduced their first uh, their first treaty, first of three major treaties that uh, created global prohibition, pushed by the United States, uh, and uh, that was to control opium, poppies, coca, and cannabis. But ten years later, and over that ensuing, I'm sure you know that it was a pretty tumultuous time during the 1960s and early 1970s in the United States and across the Western world, across the, the whole world, uh, and in the early 1970s, a second international treaty was introduced which spread prohibition uh, beyond its, uh, its original bounds of these, these three plants and into, uh, into new uh, territory uh, onto uh, 
psychedelics, uh, so LSD and psilocybin and mescaline, I believe, were wrapped up in the first treaty, but not, I don't think DMT. I think DMT might have been a bit later. Um, and uh, then this spread to the states from the, from the Commonwealth level down to the states. And uh, we saw debate in, the, uh, in Victorian Parliament, for example, uh, uh, around uh, an issue that they really had not a lot of information on. This was not a thing that MPs, even today, MPs aren't looking to get informed about this issue. Most of their information is coming from the tabloid press, as it was in the 1970s. And it's, um, the proof is in, you read Hansard and you read what the parliamentarians were saying at the time. Uh, and uh, my favourite one is there was one, uh, one MP uh, whose name eludes me, but he was, he was seriously worried about uh, some of the artwork he was seeing on Swanston Street popping up in shops, wavy lines and crazy <laughs> graphics. He thought that... That was what drugs were doing, changing our, um, our graphic designers' taste of graphics. So real, you know, devastating stuff there. But um, it, it was it, that first, that first uh, push and the real beginning of the war on drugs in the 1970s uh, started to spread into plants. Um, Torsten, did you want to touch a little bit on um, how that affected some, some of the some plants? Yeah, can I actually just add to the first bit that um, uh, you know, racism was mentioned as a, as a major driver for the um, initial prohibition in Australia, but that was also a major driver in the US and um, uh, in the League of Nations, actually. They didn't agree on, on prohibition. It was the US pushing it, and they only got it over the line with the support of South Africa. And South Africa was actually instrumental in giving us the um, single convention. Uh, and it's... Um, um, yeah predecessors and whatever followed on from there. Uh, and the South African uh, prohibition, which was mostly um, around cannabis, um, was entirely racist. It was only about um, you know, stopping um, the abuse of white women by stoned um, black males. So, um, so yeah, that's how they got, it, got all the prohibition laws that we have are basically rooted in, in racism. Now, marijuana to associate it with me the Mexicans, <laughs> African Americans becoming cocaine fiends. Yeah. So, um, so we move on um, uh, to more recent times. Um, so, these these old uh, legislative pieces uh, covered mostly um, opium, cannabis, um, well, poppy, poppy, cannabis, and cocaine. Um, and then in um, 2003 or four or something like that, um, the TGA started looking at uh, Salvia Divinorum. Uh, that was largely because there was two major distributors in Australia um, putting quite a lot of salvia onto the market, uh, imported salvia, um, and there was quite a lot of talk on the Shaman Australia's forums uh, about salvia in Australia. Uh, so the TGA uh, started looking at these communications, um, the, the prevalence of it here. There weren't any problems with it. There were no hospital admissions. There were no traffic accidents that in, involved salvia. There was no problem at that point because it was still a really niche thing. Like it was a yeah, couple hundred uh, people who yeah, went to happier herb shops or who ordered through Shaman Australis online. Um, and so there were, wasn't actually a problem yet, but the TGA has a or especially in those days, um, had a principle of um, pre-emptive pre pre scheduling, they call it. 
which was all about... So you've got to understand that the, uh, the TGA is an industry body. It has representatives from industry and from the various law enforcement agencies, from, from the Medical Association, Dental Association, Veterinary Association. So they have no interest in people having fun. Um, but they are also charged with... Uh, making sure that nothing that's in any way dangerous um, enters the marketplace. So um, because they're being held responsible and because there's no benefit that they see out of it, they just want to schedule everything before it reaches you. Um, so that's a concept of pre preemptive scheduling. So um, whereas most other countries respond to a problem, uh, the TGA in Australia tries to nip it in the bud before it actually gets anywhere. And that is how Salvia and Kratom both got scheduled within a couple of years of each other uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, just because of online chatter about those things. Now, the TGA is only the first part. Um, the states, the TGA itself actually has no power in, in terms of drug law, um, because they only schedule preparations. Now, a plant growing in your garden is not a preparation. It's um, depending on which state you're in. Um, it's usually when you harvest the plant, that's when it becomes a preparation. Um, but the TGA was also, it's sort of the, the guiding light for the state drug agencies to then you know, uh, try and get these substances scheduled. Um, they're a bit slower. So you know, New South Wales followed two, three years after the TGA made it a national thing. Um, and various other states followed from there. And over the uh, over past 10 years, which has been a particularly interesting time for a drug policy, uh, the, I think every state and territory has now amended their legislation to automatically uh, mirror what the TGA scheduling says into their own scheduling, because it, it wasn't like that in 2013. A lot of the states, you, it had to be done through, through, a, um, uh, uh, through legislation, um, and now it's done uh, automatically. So. The, the states still have total sovereignty of, the, of their schedules. Um, so Western Australia, for example, um, has the same uh, legislation as, as every other state in that each schedule within the SUSMP is automatically um, included into the, state, um, into the state legislation, which includes the drug legislation. Uh, but they uh, maintain the right to modify the schedules. Every other state has it too. Every other state can exempt uh, any of these substances. None of them do, um, but a lot of them add extra things. So Western Australia, for example, has about 20 extra additions um, to the national schedule. Um, yeah, uh, New South Wales, Victoria have a couple. So. This uh, is in Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, and also broadcasting live uh, here from Springvale City Hall for the Entheogenesis Australis Garden States uh, event. Uh, last weekend, I was up in Nimbin for Mardi Gras, uh, which has been going now since uh, 1993 or something, so do the maths, lots of years, more than 25. Uh, in fact, it's probably 26, yeah. Uh, and um, while I was up there, I caught up with uh, Ray Thorpe from the Happy Herb Company, uh, and he talked to us a little bit about uh, his experience with uh, some of these laws, so I'm just going to play a short video for you now. My name is Ray Thorpe and I founded the Happy Herb Company because I found that there was a total ignorance about plants and herbs um, in myself. It's only when I became aware of plants and herbs I thought, wow, how do we get that message out there? And I thought I'd open up a market stall and then from there went to 54 shops around the world spreading that plant message really. 
That was what we were just talking about with the scheduling of Salvia Divinorum, which was uh, the first schedule. I'll Torsten explain a little bit more to it, but um, well, first for one, in no, the... Well, you remember Salvia Divinorum, sure, it is a strong hallucinogen, but only lasts seconds, you know. And uh, one guy who suffered from really badly all his life from depression came out of depression just on one use of it, you know. And then shortly after they ban it, S9, not even for research purposes, so we're pretty upset about that. Then in America, now American shops were selling Kratom and people were getting off uh, meth addiction and heroin addiction and we were so looking forward to it. We had friends here who you might know growing it for us and we were going to import it and before we could get anywhere. There was a bit of internet chatter which the TGA obviously monitor and they banned Kratom, the only country in the world apart from Burma and Thailand to have it banned and there's other nefarious reasons for the banning of it there. And yet it had such tremendous um, therapeutic benefits, again, for well, depression, but also for getting people off either speed drugs or opiates. Yeah. And that's our biggest scourge at the moment. It's our biggest problem. And there they are, banned that plant again, S9, not even for research purposes. So the Plant Freedom Alliance uh, was uh, sort of a coalition of interested uh, groups well, we've made defending plenty of submissions plants. to the government. They seem to ignore it anyway. They, apart from the time that we stopped uh, plants with hallucinogenic uh, uh, qualities being banned here, and that's only because we got the gardeners together. And uh, a colleague of mine and yours thought of that great idea, and he appealed to them because we were making no headway. And I'd spent ten thousand dollars in advertising around Australia, and this is the problem, the strains are apathetic, you know. they're just happy songs, they've got their beer and whatever else, but uh, when it comes to herbs that they don't know about, they're not prepared to stand up. It happened, we spent a lot of money trying to stop and making that awareness when carver was being banned. Again, the only country in the world that's banning carver, and carver is so good for pain and anxiety, uh, and now you can get carver, but only in pill form, not in its natural form. So. Yeah, this is the thing. And we, we just found that we're always putting our head against the wall. But when we got the gardeners involved, and so many of them wrote to the government, they decided not to go ahead with that ridiculous proposed law of banning wattle trees, cacti, anything. And, and most of our plants contain hallucinogenic substance. And I think all wattles contain DMT. Or were they going to denude the country of wattles? Well, they said, as so long as you weren't cultivating the bottle, that you know, where do you draw the line? Are they growing naturally on your, on your property or not? It's, it's just wrong. You know? I mean, when people are dying with pharmaceuticals every day as we speak, and they, and they pick on natural plants, who are these people? Do they think they're God, you know? We are always speaking up for plants, but we actually found that we didn't get much support in that area either. We're hoping to. And it would take a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of publicity before we do. So we work quietly, I think, through our shops and through my book, Happy Eye Herbs. And I think we get the message out there. I've met people from overseas who know of our company and we're not even overseas anymore. So this was um, the book ban that went through in Victoria in uh, four years ago. Well, it certainly did place a big blow on Happy Herd Company. We lost a lot of shops because we lost our best products. Because you know, we were offering alternatives to 
illicit drugs. And my point of view is whatever people were buying as an alternative to illicit drug was one less illicit drug that was out there in the marketplace. I happened to notice a big upgrade in the use of illicit drugs because there were no alternatives. And we can't even promote alternatives. It's actually against the law to say that this natural substance will get you high or will give you an effect. Uh, a stupid law written by school kids, I don't know who wrote the law, it's badly worded as you said. I love the one in South Australia that says um, a legal alternative to an illegal drug is illegal. Yeah. And I've read that Good so many times, up. looking at it and going, that's a real catch-22 phrase. Eh? <laughs> and I remember protesting 20 years ago when it first came in. Again, not much public support, not at all really, and we were trying to gain it. We were, waving banners because it's a $25,000 fine in Queensland if a book uh, happens to mention any book that includes an illegal drug and any conversation about it is, is automatically illegal or banned and we lost $10,000 worth of books at the Brisbane Wharves. One of, some of them were the Encyclopedia of uh, Psychedelics I think was one of them and the other one I forget right now but only because one mentioned in the game ever again, which gets people off drugs. And my book has been seized and burnt also because in my book I also mention illegal herbs and why they're illegal and the safe way of using them. And then a couple of times in the past, thank goodness, Hutchwood, not recently, my books have been taken away from our shops and, and confiscated. I'm so grateful for the EJ and what you do. Um, I'm right behind it, of course. I just can't be there this year, but um, I think you do a marvellous job because the more we can stand up for plants, the more it brings people back to nature. This is what it is, you know. You know I, I got it at the harm reduction. They're all slewed to pharmaceuticals, for goodness sake, you know. It's only been for the last one or two hundred years that um, you know, pharmaceuticals have really been around. And I mean, in my grandfather's day, you could buy cannabis in the pharmacy and you could buy opiates in the pharmacy and there never was a problem. And that's the way it should be now. We should be able to buy cannabis and every substance uh, you know, in a pharmacy or, or a drug pharmacy. It's Ray Thorpe from the uh, Happy Herb Company, who I caught up with uh, last weekend, talking a little bit about um, a few different issues that have happened over the past 20 years. Um, but the Plant Freedom Alliance uh, came about in the late 2000s uh, in response to New South Wales, in particular, putting uh, forth a plan to... Uh, now, it was a ban, the uh, growth of plant contained any controlled substances uh, in them, which caused some difficulties because there's a lot of plants that can contain controlled substances. Um, Snoo, did you want to uh, touch on um, some, of the, some of the plants that might have been swept up by this uh, and, um, and what went on a little bit with the Plant Freedom Alliance? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a messy issue. I mean, firstly, I, I've viscerally feel that prohibiting any plants is just its an insult to the sanctity of life. I just find it so disgusting that I find it really hard to find the words to express how I feel about it. So many of these things could technically be interpreted as having been illegal already because of what they contain. Like if you go to the step of um, consuming a cactus that contains mescaline, then you're breaking the law. But if you have the plant, that's okay in this country, or at least it has been until recently now, it's um, sort of up in the air. Um, 
I'm not aware of many people being prosecuted for these kinds of things, for possessing these plants, but um, there's a situation where there's basically the, the, the axe is hanging over your head all the time. Um, you may or may not get in trouble. Um, it all depends on how the police or other legal officials feel about it, if anyone is bothered to do anything about it. Most people don't bring attention to themselves, they just quietly go about what they're doing. Um, some people treat these things as something to profit off and start a business around. Um, I'm not really a fan of that. I, I don't think that these plants should be um, used for, for profit by and large, in particular the, the, the more sacred plants, uh, more mundane things. Um, I don't have a big problem with people selling them, uh, as long as they're obtained sustainably. Um, having a bit of a brain freeze here. I was worried a moment ago that I was just going to puke on the microphone because I'm so nervous, wondering what I'm going to say. But um, that's right. I think. Torsten, <laughs> do you want to give me another prompt, maybe? To yeah, I know. I think um, Torsten, you had something you wanted to add as well. Um, yeah. So what you said before about the um, uh, the New South Wales laws—they weren't actually targeting plants um, directly. They were targeting um, all new psychoactive substances. Uh, and in that, the plants were swept up, and it took us many lawyers' opinions to work out what they actually meant. And it turned out that the definition was so convoluted that most lawyers got it wrong. And um, uh, my understanding of it was that plants were actually not included, that they were actually specifically excluded. Um, and it turned out in the end that that was actually correct. Um, but we had to, had to get that on record because Australian law, um, I don't know about federal law, but state law at least, um, uh, it's the intention of the, uh, the parliament um, or the sponsor of the bill that actually is part of the law. So you've got to read the explanatory note to the act uh, as well as the act itself. Um, and this particular law is actually, um, uh, the bill was uh, sponsored by... Um, the Minister for Consumer Affairs. <laughs> yeah, who's, it's not the Attorney General, not the Health Minister. It was, yeah, because of the sale of psychoactive substances. So it was a consumer affairs matter. Um, and he obviously had no idea about any of the stuff. So he wasn't even sure what was included and, and what was excluded. And it wasn't until a few days before it actually went to Parliament that we finally got. Uh, got in writing that you know, plants are actually specifically include, excluded by a particular phrase in it, which every lawyer that we had talked to had misinterpreted. Um, so it was good to get that sort of clarity um, out of it, but they weren't actually targeting plants at the time, they were just being swept up in it. The targeting of the plants didn't happen until the federal bill, um, yeah, the Senate inquiry of the um, federal, uh, federal Criminal Code Act. I think um, go going through that, you sort of touched on some of the confusion around these laws. Uh, a lot of the people that are writing these laws are not people that are experts on, on the plants or substances that they're writing um, about. They're, they're policy people or they're, they're uh, good at writing laws. Uh, and, and the big change that we've seen happen, especially since the 1990s, is the internet, is the flow of information about a wide variety of chemicals and plants, and with that then the availability of technology and the uh, increased capacity to, to manage our, our, our communication and our logistics, to move things from A to B so that we can take something uh, now, this is global capitalism, we can take something on the other side of the world and get it 
to here within a, a couple of days. Uh, that has had a huge effect, a huge change on what's going on. Unfortunately, we're still following a process of prohibition that goes, it's whack-a-mole, um, or more or less whack-a-mole, but I'll, I'll, they did a big big whack, they got like the big hammer out, uh, uh, thinking that that would solve all the problem. But uh, the way that scheduling works, just for a quick crash course, is uh, the, the TGA manages the schedules, as we've alluded to, each state has then a, 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 the, their own schedules, and they, they don't have to do what the TGA says, or most of them do. Uh, they've got a list of chemicals, for the most part, and some plants, uh, and that list is uh, how you find out if something's prohibited or not. But what people worked out, um, especially with the synthetic cannabinoids, but with a whole bunch of other substances as well in the, um, uh, in the, in the early 2000s uh, and mid-2000s was that um, we, they could take a, a chemical that they knew was psychoactive uh, and, or, or had a fair idea was going to be psychoactive but wasn't listed on those schedules and put it to market, hence legal high because it's not scheduled, uh, which caused all kinds of headaches for the, uh, for the legis uh, legislators um, because then they had to figure out a way to, to whack a mole, which was mostly amendment after amendment after amendment. Uh, James. Well, I just yeah. wanted to say, I mean, the, the whole Australian approach to, to plant and pharmaceutical drugs is, is, is extremely political. The preemptive laws is, is so reflective of the whole political approach to drugs. It is risk aversion, it is a lack of leadership. There is a fear to change anything because if there is injury or death as a consequence, somebody bears responsibility. Change nothing, risk nothing. Um, it's, it's a horrible, leaderless sort of politics we have in this area in Australia. And, and, it's, and it's, driven by the, it's driven by the media. Um, yeah, the politicians themselves are actually um, relatively courageous if it wasn't for the fact that the media was going to uh, basically make them unemployed. Mm. So um, when you're talking to politicians, never talk to first-term politicians. Um, they, they don't take any risks because they want to stay in at least the second term. Uh, the best people to talk to are actually uh, the ones who've been in Parliament for long enough that they're quite happy to go. The ones that are just <laughs> about to retire. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. always interesting, isn't it? It's, it's they face you know, electoral obliteration. Um, Kennelly in, in New South Wales finally revokes the trial status of the MSIC after 10 years of trial. Bob Carr leaves government. He finally admits he's for reform until he's back in the federal government. And then he's silent on the issue again. We, we had a Labor MP, uh, Jeff Howard, uh, Labor MP for Buninyong, come out to Rainbow Serpent Festival uh, last year um, after he'd travelled with uh, Fiona Patton around the world to, uh, to see uh, progressive drug policy, and he's all on side for it. And he retired about yeah. six months later. Um, so thanks, thanks, Jeff. But this, this, is, a, you know, this is something that, that happens. It, it, um, uh, it's, it's an issue. Drug issues are very, I don't know, confusing, salacious, uh, just difficult for the mainstream sort of narrative. Um, so it's been very easy to pursue prohibition over and over and over, but we've been seeing the same rhetoric uh, in Parliament, in Victorian Parliament, just looking locally, uh, since the 19, uh, late 1960s and early 1970s when we, we first started down this uh, prohibit and criminalise and, and give criminal penalties to people. Ever since then, they've been saying, oh, this is the one. We'll just up the penalties a little bit more and, and this, will, this will be what stops drugs. And guess what? There are more drugs now than ever before, more obscure drugs now than ever before, more harm and more use than ever before. So when do, when do we get these people to stop, reflect for a moment and say, hey, this thing that we keep doing, did it work last time? 
the time before that, the time before that? Did it actually achieve any of the results that we set out to achieve? Uh, anyway, that, you should write to your MPs and ask them that because they need to be asked that. And apparently, actually, Ash, do you want to talk a little bit about um, uh, the, the lack of communication uh, to, to MPs that you've seen so far? Yeah, so I actually work for David Limbrick, um, Liberal Democrat member for the Upper House. I'm not representing him today. The way I uh, define that is I'm wearing my hat. If I'm not wearing my hat, then I might be representing him. Um, but we, we've had um, like a bunch of different kind of anti-drug law reform groups email the office. Um, to date, since the election in November, I don't think we... I think we've had one sort of pro-reform email in the inbox. Um, and what Torsten was saying before about the way that the legislative process works, if there is any legislation going through relevant to drug policy, the questions that maybe a pro-reform MP might ask to clarify something about how a law works, that can then be used in defence in court. So when it comes to a court interpreting that legislation, if you have clarity, or, you know, it might be one minor thing that you could go, oh, well, I don't think they're understanding this right. Does that mean you want to, you know, do this to all drivers or not? And if the clarification is one that actually benefits us in the community, people that are um, in favour of reform, that can actually be really important in forming a legal precedent in the future. Um, but in general, in terms of, like, contacting MPs, do it, do it regularly. Like, um, often, often it's just a case of, like, I guess, ignorance. Like, there's a lot of things that um, members of parliament have to look at, and unless you're one of those MPs that's specifically um, about this issue, often it's just, they just don't know. And the people that are speaking to them are often these anti, you know, prohibitionist organisations, some of them religiously affiliated, and they have their own take on it. And if they're not getting other things in the inbox, if they don't have other people speaking to them, well, they may just not know. Yeah, that's a really, a really important point that you have to engage with the politicians because they, they really don't know. Um, so um, uh, I've been involved in a couple of Senate inquiries. Um, Nick was there as well at, um, at one of them. And um, the, the politicians don't know. You've got to, you have to actually explain to them the, uh, the wider effects of things. Like the, um, at one of the inquiries, the, um, the politicians were horrified um, that gardeners would be affected by it. They didn't actually understand the, the bill that was, um, that was being proposed. So the, um, the clarifications we got for the, uh, for the New South Wales legislation was actually really important. We didn't actually know at the time just how important it would be um, because that legislation was copied word for word into the UK legislation. So the, the analogues or the New South Act of Substances Laws in the UK are exactly the same ones as the New South Wales Act. Um, the uh, Victoria copied it as well. Um, Tasmania, uh, South Australia and WA as well. Uh, so the little bit of work that we did in New South Wales uh, then affected yeah, multiple jurisdictions, not just in Australia. So you've really got to um, yeah, catch, catch it early because they, they tried to go with a proven concept. Yeah, I mean, a politician's ignorance is a preferred ignorance because they have... I, I did spend a year or so as a research officer with the Victorian Drugs and Crime Parliamentary Committee back when that existed. They have access to the best advice and information. They have an investment in keeping things as they are. They have profited from the rhetoric for many years and they've campaigned on it. Um, they, they know nothing. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget the stupidity of the members on that committee. Um, 
<laughs> not knowing the very basics, but that information is communicated to them and available to them. But there, there is that risk aversion and there is too much risk to a career, their career. If they want any advancement, they don't rock the boat. This is in Psychedelia, the thin green live, uh, line live from Springvale City Hall uh, for Entheogenesis Australis Garden States. Uh, we do have some time for some uh, questions now. Uh, so if you do have a question, um, do stand up and I think come to the centre. Hamish is um, coming down with a, with a mic stand now. It looks like Hamish anyway. It's actually really bright behind you. Um, so if you do have a question, um, we, we've tried to... There's, Obviously, it's a pretty dense topic. Uh, like I said, we're in 201 shows, and we're only still scratching the surface of this uh, of this issue. And we talk about this for an hour every week um, with a, a wide variety of people, locally, uh, internationally, nationally. Uh, and um, I'm just trying to sort of relay, I suppose, this this pattern. It, it is a pattern of prohibition. It has uh, it, it's it's picked up recently, as Torsten just alluded to as well. We now have the uh, psychoactive substances legislation. So what used to be the whack-a-mole of adding a substance uh, line by line to the, to the scheduling has now changed uh, to a, a wide definition of what a psychoactive substance is, a massive list of what's exempt from being a psychoactive substance even though it's a psychoactive substance. So why? Historical reasons. There's no good reason why. No health or medical reason or anything like that. This has nothing to do with public health or safety. Right, it's... Ooh changing colours, sorry, that was cool. Um, so that's, that, and what we have now across um, the entire country is a broad ban on anything that could be considered psychoactive. So that's where prohibition's at now and, and we need to see this as a big picture. Uh, are there any uh, questions uh, that anybody wants to ask? Can I just say before you do, all of these groups that oppose any, any drug law reform, it's, a, it's worth making the effort to trace back who they are linked with, because they're often all linked together. Drug Free Australia, the National Advisory Council on Drugs, Australian Family Association. They are, as you say, uh, conservative religious groups. They, the evidence is shoddy. Um, the, the, the piece that was authored against pill testing, um, Russian Roulette or some crap it was called, that was just quoting selectively from newspaper articles, I'd, Search the author, it's an online search, and she turns up as a researcher for the Christian Democrats. She turns up writing um, anti-transgender articles and about the evils of homosexuality. I mean, the, the patronage of Margaret Court says everything about organisations that have less to do with evidence than credible evidence. There's, there's no two equal sides. There is credible evidence and there is prejudice and opinion. Question. Sorry. Uh, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about, uh, sort of like, Current cannabis laws in Australia, maybe what's coming, what's changing uh, with things like Canada, um, California, what may happen here in the future? Uh, seen as Fiona Pat Patton couldn't make it today, I'll, I'll, I'll guess I'll give her a nod on her behalf. She actually has a cannabis bill before the Legislative Council here in Victoria right now um, that hasn't gone to second reading yet, so I can't tell you the details. Um, but she's also uh, referred the issue to, or put a motion that she's going to try and refer the issue to a joint select committee um, 
procedurally that's just kind of where they kind of set up a committee from different parties to look into an issue that's where a lot of laws are generated there'll be a committee that looks at it makes some recommendations um, that's probably where we're at in Victoria. In terms of how likely that is to get up, it's hard to know. It'll need government support. It's almost certainly not going to get opposition support. But here in Victoria, we're in an interesting place right now. The crossbench is the same size of the op as the opposition. Uh, it's got 11 members. I think five of them are specifically pro-drug law reform. The Liberal Democrats, Reason Party, the Greens, Andy Medic from the Animal Justice Party is likely to be supportive of some things. And some of the other cross-bench might, cross members might be as well. Maybe you'd like to contact them and ask their opinion. Um, with that level of support, it's quite possible that it could get through. Fiona put up the... Um, the drug law reform inquiry uh, last session of parliament and that was highly successful in bringing a lot of people together. The government response was a bit lacklustre. Um, and ACT right now has a, a cannabis bill that would allow people to grow some plants in their own home. Um, so I'd say the ACT might shine the light for us. That's meant to go through in August this year, I think. Um, Victoria, it depends. It, it may be that the government might be inclined to support at least an inquiry and to look at the issue, given what's happening in New Zealand right mm. next door. The fact that they're moving forward is going to put more pressure back on us. Um, I know people that are working on it in Western Australia as well. New South Wales is really hard to <laughs> get anything positive going on right now. I was um, moved on from 1996 when we last debated legalising cannabis in Victoria and Conservative members were making arguments that it would shrink your testicles, that it would bring Sodom and Gomorrah down upon society. It was just... A, and, uh, and these, are, is, these are our representatives. Our this list. is just cannabis that we're talking about. As we're trying to paint a, paint a picture here, it's, it's, mm. all, it's all the same. Like Cannabis is scheduled alongside uh, all the other drugs and a whole bunch of steroids. <coughs> Actually, half the schedule is not, um, not psychoactive drugs, it's steroids. So that's Schedule 11 in Victoria. But maybe um, before we go to another question, unless you had a second, do you have a second part to your question? Uh, not specifically. Just, no. Yeah, just more. <laughs> Um, yeah, before we go to that, maybe we should just touch on the importance uh, of why, why we should be looking after our plants and why we should be um, able to explore these areas. And Snoo, I think that's your um, specialty. Yeah, I mean, th these plants to me, they're an agent that helps you get in touch with the natural world, the spiritual world, your friends and family, all of the human race around you, um, everything seen and unseen. Um, So to me, that means we're dealing with very special stuff that should not be subject to any kind of legal restriction. Um, yeah, I, I, I do find it hard to, to discuss this kind of thing because I'm not as down with the legal niceties as, as these two gentlemen are. Um, Is that the danger, though, Snow? I mean, the fact yeah. that it, it deconstructs all of these hierarchical regulations and categories that were all pushed into by bureaucracies. Yeah. It's been much more easy to govern a society if you can categorise people and make them close, close easily definable. Yeah, well, it's fear versus love, I guess. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. it's fear what keeps the, the legal situation the way it is. Um, as folks have said today, um, politicians are scared to change anything because they don't want to be the one that gets um, that is standing out as someone who's soft on drugs or giving the wrong message or, uh, or anything like that. It's people who are fearful that if these things are just allowed to become free, then society will rapidly crumble into some kind of degenerate, horrible situation. 
I mean, honestly, that's the way we're heading anyway with, with the laws we do have. You know, things, <laughs> things are only going to get worse if we continue down this route. Um, coca, is, uh, coca and cocaine are a really good example of that. Our prohibition can just make things worse on just about every level for everyone involved. Um, and there's a handout. I don't know if there's still copies out at the, the desk. There's a handout of a paper I wrote about this if you wanted to explore that in a bit more detail. Um, I don't know if there's time here to elaborate. I'd basically just re be repeating what I wrote in that, so please go and have a look at that. Um, prohibition does benefit um, white, middle-aged Christian men because it perpetuates their power structure. I mean, in the United States, you get a drug conviction, you're banned from voting for life, sitting on juries for life. You, yeah. you keep a, a marginalised population down and oppressed as you know, a, a subtle Jim Crow system. If, if, you can't you even can visit the country if you've been busted for cannabis, you know, you can't visit the States. Yeah. Uh, we, we might just go to the next yes. question because we're getting very short on time. <laughs> yeah, Please. Uh, I'm a bit nervous. I've not really done this public speaking, but I can't help but agree with you. Who determines what I have, uh, you know, am able to do with my consciousness? It's, it's outrageous. I agree. But Sorry, I, a little, I wanna, little louder. Okay. I just want to... I'm wondering, just generally, in broad brushstrokes, a lot of the rhetoric I, I see on social media when there are questions of drug use or heroin in particular, there seems to be this, uh, they condemn people for, they've chosen that as if, you know, there's this aversion, a pejorative to pleasure, you know, it's evil that you should be enjoying yourself. How much is there a resistance to change because this ingrained notion that um, seeking pleasure for its own sake is somehow hedonistic and uh, undisciplined, you know? I, I don't know. There seems to be a, a, a cloud around drug use that if you use it, you are ill-disciplined and, yeah. Uh, that, go, that, goes, um, that goes to what he said before about the, um, the white male Christian um, conservatives, uh, yeah, because it's all about the moralism behind it, you know, because having, having pleasure shouldn't be a bad thing, but, you know, un under, you know, religious concepts, um, it is. So um, you've got to kind of just do away with that. And like a lot of people in our community already do, they just ignore the laws because they just make no sense. Um, so my angle for drug education has always been um, not necessarily to tell people that you have to obey the law, but uh, know what laws you're breaking, um, so you can um, uh, you can maximise your pleasure out of it uh, without then having to pay a, a high price for it. You raised a good but Catholic like me, Luke. We're meant to be begging for forgiveness for our sins all of our lives, not enjoying life. Um, Pope John Paul made a statement about how drugs is a abrogation of your free will um, and your inability to think freely. Instead, believe. Obviously, church dogma, because that is an expression of freedom. Well, I'm a recovering Catholic, it's true. Um, a recovering Catholic. Recovering Catholic. Yep. Continue. But, but I would argue that um, it's actually, uh, as this gentleman to the left said, um, my experience of certain substances has been nothing but actually a gnosis of a higher connection to my place in the universe and my relationship with it. Um, I don't, I'm not suggesting that's going to be true for everyone, but this is why I say, how dare someone suggest or legislate against what I can or cannot do with my consciousness? Um, 
the sense of separation that I think a lot of people feel in this society can be negated by using some of these substances, and I'm thinking psychedelics in particular, in a group setting. And in that way, I've found a bonding and experience that is not just lit up for the time that I'm high, but has formed genuine bonds that have seen me through years and years. Um, because we've cut through so much conditioning and shit in those three hours that we otherwise would have done. I, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just saying that how the fuck dare people tell me how high I can get, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of support for that idea in this room. I think that one of the things that it brings forward is um, what kind of narratives like exist in society and what kind of narratives we can use ourselves to, to kind of move things forward. And I think a narrative about pleasure, like one that's not apologetic, is an important one to have. I think, as Torsten was saying, though, it's also important to know the law. Um, I'm all for the idea of kind of like people coming out, talking about their own experiences. There's ways to do that that are safe legally and there's ways to do that that are risky legally. And um, knowing the difference can really make it easier for you to navigate that. It's something that came up, it's come up pretty much constantly with Students for Sensible Drug Policy where people have a desire to talk about their own experience, but there's also risks with that, especially for young people. If you're associated with illicit substance use publicly, that could have risk factors for your career. But there are ways to, to kind of allude to things or to talk about things in a way that's not necessarily risky for yourself legally or in a reputation kind of way. And I think as many of those stories where people kind of have self-agency and self-empowerment to talk about their own experiences. And for a lot of people, and no doubt a lot of people in this room, they're very significant experiences. You know, it's like not being able to talk about your marriage, not being able to talk about the first time you fell in love. And I think it's really important that we do create spaces where we can have those conversations, either publicly, privately, in small groups. But I think that breaking down that, that dichotomy where often the only people that talk about their use are people that are apologetic for a previous problematic use and I think that's we call a that really... the repentance narrative yeah repent and, your sins and I think that that's important because people suffer Some from people addiction and they work through it but having a counter narrative where other people can talk about their positive experiences even, is equally counter, important maybe a, 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 we, we are quickly running out of time actually and there is one more question here so let's just go to this question uh, was that time there Michaela Ah, oh, uh, so that's gone? I'm going to ask. We are off air? No, we're still on air. We're going. Okay. <laughs> um, last question, go. <laughs> Beautiful segue, Ash. Uh, I'd like to bring a, bring a bit of hope and light to the conversation, especially around cannabis. Uh, at the end of 2017, I was on an episode of Stealth Care on uh, SBS Viceland, talking about the difficulties accessing medicinal cannabis since it's been made legal. Uh, 12 months down the track, uh, I'm now a medicinal cannabis patient. I've been using oil and it's been ineffective. Now I've actually put in an application to the TGA to get cannabis flowers. And I've had a friend that's been approved this week as well. Uh, we're actually getting access to real flowers. So, you know, it's a celebration. We're, we're kicking goals. We're, we're a year on in that legislation and we've only got um, 5,000 um, people who've been prescribed medical cannabis. 
so yeah, from something uh, that the estimate is around about 150,000 um, who are currently being supplied by illegal medical cannabis suppliers. Uh, so, yeah, 5,000 versus 150,000 is just a ridiculously small number, um, considering it's already been over a year that uh, this, this um, process has been in place. Well, the fact that it's been acknowledged by, by our government and to deny people access to that medicine is actually a war crime. Uh, this yep. is a human rights issue now. Absolutely. They can't it's a, have it absolutely both ways. Human, right, human rights issue. And uh, you also can't forget that um, only very few conditions are currently permitted to use. This has uh, been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.